Welcome to Cottonmouth Manchester, the podcast of the Manchester City Centre business community. I'm Vaughan Allen of Cityco Manchester, the City Centre management company, and this is the long-promised launch of our listicle series. We're still using that name. We're having an in-depth look at restaurants across the years in Manchester. A few weeks ago, we put up a call on Twitter for people's views on the most influential restaurants in the city. We got tons of responses, so thank you to everyone who debated. In this pod, Ruth Allen of Manchester Wire and Tom Hetherington, the newly appointed business desk restaurant critic, and myself will be discussing the suggestions and coming to some sort of final list. You'll be guaranteed to disagree. Alongside, we have Hayley Flynn, or Skyliner as she's professionally known, taking us through some prehistory and a few clips from respondents making their cases. But first, the tricky subject of definitions. So getting the podcast band back together, some of our most popular podcasts over the last five years have featured these two. So we thought it would be essential to bring them back early on in the new season. This is uh, Tom and Ruth. And we've had a pretty good Twitter response to the question about what is the most influential Manchester restaurant? We didn't put a time limit on it, but we did get thrown up a few things. We got pubs, we got bakeries. Thoughts on what we mean by influential? Tom. Interesting. It's one of those words that everyone seems to interpret slightly differently. Um, some people were maybe confusing it or mixing it in with the idea that a restaurant was popular or that it had lasted a long time. The Dutch pancake house came up a lot because that's very important in people's memories. There you go. And I think people were fast and loose with the idea of uh, iconic restaurants being uh, influential as well. We could have a whole different debate as to what, what makes something iconic. But for me, if it's influential... I think you need to change things. You need to change what went thereafter. So you either need to establish a a new style or a new cuisine or raise the level, move the bar, change an area, change audiences, change the city. And you should still be able to see, in technical terms, the influence of that restaurant years down the line, maybe even years after it's gone. But you should still be able to see the echoes of that restaurant in Manchester. Are you in broad agreement with that, Ruth? Yeah, I'd say I think Tom's really got it um, nail got the nail on the head there. Um, I, yeah, I would say that uh, um, an influential restaurant is one that has reverberations throughout time or whatever. I, I do think that when we were doing the analysis uh, on Twitter and stuff, uh, a lot of people were kind of confusing it with nostalgic as well. So they're like, "Oh, I used to really love that place. Where did it go?" Um, and that is nice, but it's not. Yeah, it's not necessarily an influential restaurant, particularly if none of them exist anymore. So yes. <laughs> Yeah, though I did notice there is a Dutch pancake house that's opened somewhere in Greater Manchester in the last few weeks, actually, and it's getting quite a lot of publicity. So, which was brilliant. There's a wonderful kind of circularity there. There isn't is. It? It's yeah. kind of come back it was around. funny that that came back up after all the nostalgia about it. Um, there was a lot of nostalgia also around Ho's Bakery, yeah. uh, but we sort of thought bakery maybe we can't really classify that as a restaurant. There were a number of pubs where you'd probably think of the drinking experience more than the food experience, but we can't be totally hard and fast about this. So I think there's a few different directions. One. Um, It's influential if it led to other restaurants of a similar type or in a similar genre, or it's influential if it created a new area of the city or significantly boosted an area of the city, or I guess if it created a step change in a type of cuisine or in a type of clientele. Would we broadly be in agreement that that's about right? I am broadly in agreement with that, Vaughan. 
I like that, yes. I like broad agreement. Right, before we start on some of the responses and looking at some of the ones that didn't make the final list, we have Hayley Flynn, who's just joined the Twitter thread to point out that even for the really ancient people like myself, who can vaguely think back to the late 70s and early 80s, there were restaurants in the city centre before that period. Um, so did a quick interview, which turned out to be quite a lengthy interview, as it always does with Hayley, about the sort of prehistory of Manchester city centre. <laughs> So welcome to Hayley Flynn. When we talked about this on Twitter and wanted to find the uh, most influential restaurant, inevitably because of the age of the people that were being involved, we went back for a lot of people to the, the noughts and the 90s. A few of us who are ancient went back to the late 70s or early 80s. Um, and Hayley came on quite correctly to start talking about what I guess is prehistory for most of us. Uh, and picked up a number of restaurants, particularly, I think, in the 40s and 50s, showed there's some really nice designs of interesting restaurants in the city centre. So I just wanted Hayley to pick out a few of the restaurants that probably we won't be mentioning in the final five, but were very important in their time. So I think, Hayley, the one I really want to start with, because I, I was so inspired by the story you said that I went out and dug up some of the designs and I was just absolutely blown away by the designs is this tripe restaurant that was in the city centre. Tell us about this. Where did it come from? How long did it last? Why was it so popular? Um, the UCP, the United Cattle Products, it was formed as part of um, a collective of tripe dressers in Lancashire that decided to... Which is a wonderful them. idea. It's not... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they, uh, they pooled their resources and they became a, a collective and uh, set up UCP. Their main office was Manchester and they had a factory to produce food in Levenshume. Um, they were also quite big in Bolton as well. I think the, the, the two kind of finest restaurants they had were Market Street in Manchester and Bradshaw Gate in Bolton. And I think they, they came about in the 30s, I think, but the, the peak of the popularity was around about the mid 60s in Manchester anyway. Uh, and that's probably driven by post-war um, attitudes to, to the kind of food you were eating. So, you know, even coming out of rationing, you were still viewing things like tripe as maybe a bit of a luxury. Um, I've heard that it was, <clears throat> excuse me, I heard that it was referred to as um, Lancashire calamari. Uh, <laughs> Which is a brilliant piece of marketing, frankly. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And the Manchester um, Market Street store, I can't think what's in that building now. Um, do you? Can you think what's there now? Uh, I can't remember. I did know when we did the thing. I'll put it in yeah. the show notes of what it is, actually. I think yeah. at one point it was shoe, um, but I haven't paid much attention in the meantime. Um, but that was three stories, I think, and they had a fountain in there and wood panel walls, and then they had, like, this special dining room. So when had... you think of tripe shop, <laughs> you, you, you think of a sort of, I don't know, a fish and chip shop or a butcher's or a glorified butcher's. We are talking serious high-end restaurant here, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. You know, it yeah, like they... stay, stay, looks like it's semi-art deco in the design and, yeah. and so on. That's incredible. And particularly in the 60s. So London is swinging and Manchester is eating tripe as a, as a proper luxury at, at the time. Yeah, yeah. So I, I read that they had like um, blue animal hide on the walls in the kind of, um, I think it was a room you could hire out or it was, uh, from what I can gather, I think if you came in at the ground floor, it was a bit more casual. And then as you went higher up in the building, it became more fine dining. Um, and yeah, it was silver service almost with, you know, waitresses in their black and white uh, outfits. And then all the um, cutlery had the UCP branding on it. And it was a real place to be in the, in, in the mid 60s. Yeah. How long did it last? Um, I think till about the 80s, some of them were still knocking around. Um, the kind of 
petered out. I think some of them were taken over by different shops. So I don't I don't think there was a, a, a day that UCP went out of existence. It just kind of was um, phased out gradually. Uh, I know there's uh, there's an account on Twitter that are like tripe enthusiasts and they're trying to bring it back. <laughs> They'd probably be interesting to speak to. Excellent. So that that was high class high high class dining in the in the fifties and sixties, I guess. It's it's interesting because I think possibly you could see that brought back as a sort of post paleo movement type thing, couldn't you? And a, and a lot of the stuff that was sort of tripe and um, stews and all of that sort of stuff, sort of like organ meat very very in in the last decade as well so you know you could almost see that because i know a lot of people were then tricking out to Ber- to berry market because that's virtually the only place that you can get st- good stuff these days so it's astonishing to think about that now walking around the city there are a number of ghost signs as well so one of the ghost signs that we see and, and as is actually a beautiful little sign on a, on a building is cardoma which was a cafe or restaurant yeah um a cafe um People talk about it more just as a coffee shop. You don't really hear many people saying that the food was amazing. It was more of a gathering spot for them. And I think it was quite popular with the cultural scene. So you'd have a lot of poets meeting up there, uh, especially left bank. Yeah. The one just off Albert Square, especially, is what I've read about as journalists spending a lot of time there and writers and this being this kind of subculture of creative people meeting up to have coffee and yeah just be cool (laughs) but the ones that were spread around the rest of the city seemed to be a lot more uh I'm not sure if working class is the right word but they there wasn't any barrier to entry they were a really nice place to be but everybody could spend time there and not feel out of place um and that was that was a chain but it does it pops up in a lot of people's memories when they talk about Manchester even if they're not being asked about food or drink it seems to be a, a common thing that comes up that people just remember really fondly and, and held a, a real place in their hearts. Yeah, it's one of those that definitely, it's the sort of, I remember being taken there and it was the first fashionable coffee house or it was the first fashionable place. Um, seemed to seem to provide a, a multifunction because some people talk about it almost like the milk bars in Soho. As it was like a place to go that was that felt quite trendy, but was also a place that teenagers or younger people, it wasn't that expensive, could hang out yeah. and meet each other. Yeah, I guess it's similar to um, the Dutch pancake house, maybe in, in terms of where you would uh, position it. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I've, I mean, I've been surprised because when I first researched them, I'd looked into that one off Stevenson Square specifically. So I thought they were all just, you know, for maybe middle class people who were already quite successful writers or something. And then the more I researched, it was actually just, you know, people's grannies saying, I used to love taking my dates there. Or it, it was just, yeah, a, a really nice social space for people. And, and they were in places where we haven't really seen them replicated, you know, like the Market Street one, you don't, there isn't a coffee shop there now. It's become commerce. And I mean, I guess the one on Stevenson Square is um, is a restaurant again now. But they, they had a nice spread across the city as well. So, yeah, they, they seem to be a good social network for people. And another sort of idea that dipped through the 90s and thousands, and then obviously you can't move for coffee shops across the city at varying prices, it has to be said. Uh, but that idea of the non-pub uh, third place or fourth place meeting place um, very much came back in after after a while where, where, it, where it was out. Um, those sort of, you know, the Lion's Tea Houses nationally obviously were, were immensely famous, but regionally, most regions would have their own versions of with actually quite a few branches as well, wouldn't they? Yeah, and um, just thinking about the streets that 
existed before the Arndale was there as well. I think for the most part, I'd read that they were, you know, beat clubs and people were taking acid and they were dens of iniquity. But the more I've looked into it, they just seem to be a couple of pubs and coffee shops, but the coffee shops would have people in there playing their trumpet, which might have just been too wild for councillors at the time. Yeah, there's some wonderful accounts of um, some of the quality street gangsters complaining about the building of the Arndale because um, all of those little streets where you could just hop in and out and do some illegal whatever and meet whoever and then you'd see a swinging jazz band and uh, all of that got torn down. And you sort of, in their descriptions, you could understand why the city planners probably decided to tear it down, but it also took out something else as well. So there are a number of different things. So the idea, the idea that the city centre didn't have anything is obviously not true um because people were coming in market street obviously it, it had lewis's you you had kendall's you had uh you know all all the shops where people would come in on the, on the saturday um to shop and to eat out and some of these things were, were treats um we get the first chinese restaurant i think rice bowl was probably one of the first in the in the late 60s i believe and and i think i think the curry house Raj, rajdu has been around since the early 70s as well yeah. um so, so when did you start, is that is that when you started to see more cooking from sort of ethnic minority populations coming in or was there stuff already? There was some stuff already. I don't know how quickly that multiplied though. Um, I think it was the 30s when there was the first Indian restaurant on Oxford Street, the Koinor, um, and there was a Chinese called Ping Hong, which was also the 30s as well. They were actually next door to each other on a photograph that I found, but the, there was a, P- a Ping Hong that predated that on Mosley Street. So Kind of, yes, well, 40s, I think that would have been actually. So kind of 40s and 50s, you start to see a different offer. But, and from what I can gather, they were really popular places to go. It was a real destination. I have read that actually the the, um, Koh-i-Noor, whilst people say that was the first Indian on Oxford Street, the brothers that owned it, I think actually did have something earlier um, along London Road, but it's not really been documented anywhere. So that might not be true. But there was definitely... But that would make uh, a lot of sense because of actually some of the factories around there and the textile areas around there were, you know, going to be full of immigrants from um, South Asia, aren't they? Yeah, exactly. So it's probably that the Oxford Road one was the first one that brought it to the the community in Manchester on a wider scale. Um, so, I mean, I think it might have been slow going for some of them originally, because I think with the Chinese restaurants, that was a case of adapting from being trades like laundries when people were getting to wash at home. Then, you know, obviously they were having to adapt. So I don't know how rapidly they took off. Um, but I mean, obviously they're so well established now, you know, the Chinese is the... <laughs> Um, I know where people say that, like, is it tikka masala or something meant to be the dish of the UK? But Chinese dishes have got to be up there as well. And that's always something that I I like to tell people about uh, salt and pepper chips, is that that was a northern invention. I think that was Liverpool, wasn't it? (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, well, I think Liverpool claims the first Chinese takeaway, doesn't it? Oh, really? Though there is a bit of argument, and I know some of the East End does as well. I think one of the really interesting things that happens with those those new culinary traditions as they start to come in in, in, well, in the 40s but particularly in the 50s and 60s is um is one of the use for uh, facebook local history groups is when people start to, does anybody remember blah 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 and you see the importance of those for communities that are still a lot of them would have been 98 99 percent um white british at the time but actually the importance and you know the weddings and the you know i remember those because of whatever happened in um and become uh real touchstones for for local history yeah and as well i think in terms of maintaining the neighborhoods they're in 
so you know thinking of places like this and that and where where you think actually if I went back to the 70s 80s you know even early 90s a lot of these neighborhoods probably didn't have much else going on for them not much reason to go and kind of see a lot of these traders and restaurants as the guardians of those places you know they've been like the caretakers of them and and kept a presence on those streets and thankfully most of them are, are still knocking around yeah and it's as, as a 15 year resident of the northern quarter i have to say um losing hunters where i used to go for a venison curry was a was a real shame um they, they knew my order very well the only place you could actually get venison stew of any sort in in manchester at the time i'm sure you could very poshly but you know what i mean yeah. um but there there's always been that real drive to keep the curry cafes there while the rest of it is is posh bars and so on and it seems to rub along pretty well thank you for that, that that's been brilliant Haley. are there any other ones that you know that you remember that you think uh those were really amazing and really surprised you when you found out about them um oh god i feel on the spot see now. how to put you on the spot that's that's <laughs> one of the questions I mean, I guess just thinking about things like the Vegetarian Society, I think I'd mentioned that the what's Primark now had been a, a Victorian gentleman's dining club, and that was only vegetarian food. I don't think that they promoted it in that way. It wasn't that, you know, we're going to head to the Vegetarian Society. It's just that they were involved in that in that particular premises. And I don't was know it how... Was a shop well... as well, or did they actually have pretty well the entire... It, yeah, it was like billiards room and meeting okay. room. I don't know how much of it in that they took of the building, but I don't know how well that would have been received if you weren't aware of it being veggie before you go, you know, thinking about all the chop houses and people wanting to get together and eat meat. Um, so I think, you know, in terms of social history, definitely places like that where the vegetarian society had took hold of pretty interesting, but there doesn't seem to be much in the way of records on them. So who knows how long they lasted or it how one well of those things when you look through a lot of old photos and then you try and you go well that's that's interesting that establishment and then you find that there's very little information about a lot of this stuff um yeah. oh i do i have remembered it wasn't well i suppose it is a restaurant um in the mccure hotel when it was the piccadilly hotel i've always been quite fond of the fact that they'd adapt their menu to suit whatever was in the news at the time um so they had like a coronation omelette or something oh no it wasn't for the coronation it was for when spring gardens post office opened and they had a, a post office themed omelette on the menu <laughs> that is absolutely brilliant to be honest because um you know it's it's one of those things that you, you're not we've got coronation quiche at the moment haven't we and it's like it's one of those things that you know you, you, you sort of think well that that's some very modern idea so um <laughs> Uh, you know, you you think um, coronation quiche has been a big thing, and people are going, "Well, what what on earth is that?" Um, but actually, that that thing, that uh, long tradition of dishes for opening of buildings or special occasions has been really, really important. Yeah, I think it was called the GPO surprise. That's absolutely brilliant. And I'm going to leave aside the Dutch pancake house because I think we, uh, the number of comments we got about the Dutch pancake house is probably going to get a whole episode on its own from from people's comments. Yeah. Thank you for that, Haley. That's been brilliant. I have to say, I've been just doing a quick Google as you um, talked. There is a website called unitedcattleproducts.co.uk and there are 15 pages of memories of eating <laughs> at UCP. Um, so, you know, it, it is quite substantial to say the least. There is a memory here that says, uh, being Jewish, the USP meat never entered our home, but I have a vivid memory of walking past the UCP in central Manchester with my gra grandfather en route for a cafe dash at a Cardoma cafe. Oh. <laughs> it was raining, but there was a long queue of housewives outside and the shop's windows were bedecked with sheets of off-white tripe and dark coils of black pudding. <laughs> There's a view that 
walk into the walk into the posh coffee shop past the butchers with that stuff in the window you could probably do in 2023 to be honest yeah <laughs> thank you very much Hayley speak to you thank soon thank you thank you Hayley and we're back so um we've defined what influential means so we set out our terms that's the first paragraph of any good essay obviously before people lose all hope if that doesn't put us in the running for suits corner in private eye i'll be sore <laughs> we didn't use enough long words though tom yeah we, i'll get the word narrative in at some point don't worry yeah excellent so there were about 60 different establishments that were broadly qualified that came up on the Twitter threads, um, some of which you guys provided, uh, a few of which I provided, and a lot were provided by those who were just responding. Um, there's some classic ones there. A lot of mentions of the French, uh, certainly prior, when it still had its Michelin star, probably from people who didn't actually go, I would think, most of them, because of the youth of people that were involved. Um, let's talk about some of the game changers. When we talk particularly around the new areas of the city, so Curry Mile, Chinatown, and so on. Um, can you pick out a few that are game changers in terms of how they contributed to the sort of the physical geography of the city? Again, Tom, to start. I could, I could probably offer, offer one, which is uh, relatively recent, but I don't think it's uh, game-changing credentials could be denied, and that would be the original Rudy's in Ancos, um, which was set up by a, a couple called Jim and Kate that come from other careers, other backgrounds, but decided that they wanted to um, make, make a pizza for a living. So they taught themselves to, to do it. They did various pop-ups, and then they took a permanent site. And I remember at the, the time, there was still a real divide on Great Anco Street. You know, even the edgy creative businesses of the Northern Quarter felt crossing that street was just a bit far. You know, here be monsters. It's not so Because your office was on the other side of the street, wasn't uh, it? it? It was, it was. We, we traversed the divide um, quite, quite elegantly, I think, at Virginia House back in the, uh, back in the day. Um, but they went, they went right over there into the heart of Anco's. There was clearly no restaurant scene really around there of any, any sort at the time and they took a tiny unit in the bottom of a new build multi-story car park that was basically a concrete shell and they fitted it out for about what looked like 8p and the the cost of the uh, the oven the essential oven and on paper it was lunacy and in reality they smashed it i mean it was an unbelievable success i won't say that it it brought a type of pizza to the city that we haven't seen before because honest crust where jim actually went and kind of learned his trade were were there first but certainly in terms of the city center in a permanent site they were knocking out this kind of beautiful elastic dough neapolitan pizza and they did it in the heart of anko it's a place where almost everybody in the industry or in the city would have said you are going to fail there you will die a death you will not get the footfall there'll be problems it'll be a nightmare and it hasn't and I think it was a proof of concept along with a lot of the regeneration work that was being done around the area by various stakeholders that restaurants can work in Encoats and you can establish a different scene a different circuit up there and we look at where we are now with Manor with Erst with hip-hop chip shop with the Jane Eyre with Edinburgh Castle the, the list goes on and on and on um, I think it's arguably one of the strongest restaurant scenes of any district in the entire city centre um, and I think it began with Rudy's and we weren't the first city to use a restaurant as a way of opening up a new new area. But um, in terms of the number of cities that have now come after that are looking at, well, quite often they're looking at Rudy's itself. Or we're seeing a similar thing with the Altrincham Food Hall that then goes, you know, for, for five years, it has been necessary that if you're on the high street task force, you recommend a food hall as the way of regenerating somewhere. But it was interesting in this city how quickly, usually when that happens, you see the same genres happening in an area but you get a lot of copycats the interesting thing about Ancoats is all of those places are very very different and 
they're all niche semi-independents, albeit it's not so independent now. And I think part of that is down to the ownership. It was one of the rare parts of Manchester, probably Spinningfields was the only other, where there wasn't single ownership, but there was predominantly a single ownership. Manchester Life owned a huge swathe of that space, and they, they house most of the, the restaurants that we all get excited about now. And because they could take a strategic view, because they own so much of the district, they could really cherry-pick the restaurants that they wanted in there to ensure that there was balance, to ensure that there was a good offer, to ensure that Seeds Corner, it, there was a kind of narrative to it and that it would attract people and it would generate PR and it would generate excitement. You see that happen in cities like London all the time, in Marlebone or in Mayfair and wherever. It doesn't normally happen in Manchester and to see someone, again, a horrible word to use out of art context, but to see someone curate a district in terms of the F&B was fascinating. And, uh, you know, Ancoats is, is still a changing dynamic part of the city not without its issues still to be solved but I think in terms of restaurants food and drink they've done a phenomenal job and as I say Rudy's Rudy's kind of kick-started the whole process. I, I didn't know that about that area at all um do you think that they made it affordable as well to attract do you know what I mean do you think that they priced it accordingly because yeah, I, I remember years ago Mary Ellen left Ombry and was looking for Mary McTay, the chef, was looking for um, a place to set friend her own. French. <laughs> I am friends with her. She was telling me that she was looking at Ancoats and we decided, you know, we're chatting. We're like, yeah, no one will ever go there. <laughs> and it was like, it was written off as being just too far, too far out of the Northern Quarter. Yeah, it, it, it was. But to, to go back to your point, yes, they, they will do preferential deals to get the right operators in there because they own so much of the district and they own all of the upper floors and thousands of apartments it's in their interest almost to not lost lead but the same principle to underprice to get the right restaurants in there because that that raises the the reputation and the, the kind of living experience and therefore the price point of the entire district so all of their apartments for example or all of their office buildings and i'm using figures at random they can add 20 percent to that because suddenly everyone wants to be in ancos because they've curated this ground floor beautifully and that is what the major landowners do in other major cities around the world it's just I think in Manchester, the land ownership, the building ownership have always been so fragmented. We see it on King Street now. It's every man for himself. No one wants to take a hit for the greater good of the surrounding area. They all look at their landlord next door and say, why don't you do it? And in Anco, someone could take that big overview. And it's, uh, it's fascinating how it's changed the city. Yeah, that is interesting. Yeah, I think also there was, uh, when that started in Anco, we had the development of uh, not quite dark kitchens, but we had enough of a residential population that, that people were willing to move a little bit further out in terms of what they were doing, knowing that they had deliveries as a significant part of their offer. So they didn't necessarily need to be banging the city centre at that time. Um, it's been one of the interesting things that's come out post-COVID is we're, because rents have gone down slightly, but also because the delivery model has gone from 20% of somebody's business to 80% of somebody's business. You're actually starting to see that in the city centre as well, which has interesting problems when you start pedestrianising everywhere, where all the delivery drivers are going to go. So talking about Ancoats, um, we are aware, obviously, other restaurants have created other areas. Um, Curry Mile, Wilms Wilmslow Road, we had Sheer Khan as the first one. One of the debates also that you were on, talk about Sheer Khan, uh, Ruth, but um, one of the debates you were on was about uh, the most influential veggie restaurants as well which there have been a number of over the years. Yeah, there's been loads of over the years. Um, I mean, Greens was, uh, is the one that kind of springs to mind initially. Um, and obviously now there's Bundabust, which is very popular. I mean, there's, uh, yeah. I think with Greens, the, I, I lived around the corner at the time and we, we went to it just because it was a kind of cool looking little restaurant. The fact it was vegetarian um, was all, almost incidental and neither myself nor my, my partner were, were veggie. And it really kind of opened our eyes. I know it sounds ridiculous. It's going back 20 years or whatever, but it opened our eyes to 
how contemporary vegetarian food could be. We'd grown up in the 70s where, you know, it's a lot of nut roasts and a lot of lentils and there was a little whole food shop in Glossop that had a very particular smell about it. I still remember. And suddenly they were doing really cool, really interesting stuff. And I remember a couple of dishes to this to this day. They used to do the equivalent of duck hoisin pancakes, but they did them with a kind of a mushroom, a fried mushroom. So you got I, that I real intense. It. <laughs> I think they still do it. Honestly, it was absolutely... Absolutely brilliant. And they did this incredible strudel with a, with a port wine reduction as well. Incredible. Fabulous. You know, the fact it was veggie was neither here nor there. It was contemporary, exciting, good looking, you know, vibrant, delicious food. And uh, yeah, for me, and I, I know it does sound slightly silly in retrospect, but it really made me reappraise what vegetarian food could be and should be. And the fact that you, you don't have to put on a kind of hair shirt to, to do it. You know, it's just part of a, where the contemporary food scene was. It wasn't a heart back to kind of hippie-ish 70s era we grew up in. Yeah, I, I mean, I like greens. Um, but to my mind, it hasn't quite... It's not, it's not quite as maybe iconic as... Not like, I'm using the wrong word here. <laughs> Influential, yeah. <laughs> and some of the others. I can see how it, did, how it did change the food scene, but I think for me, the ones that I get really excited about are where you see um, particularly kind of Indian-inspired ones like Bundabas, where you can see them doing really kind of really authentic dishes, but then with a kind of fast food edge to them, you know, like kind of putting it into a burger or whatever like that and kind of making fries out of okra and stuff. So kind of putting a twist on really classic things. For me, that feels fresher but perhaps that's part of you know our acceptance of that comes from you know innovations like greens could be yeah and that could be influential and that could potentially be, it could potentially be influential potentially. Yeah. yeah so as well as ancoats as well as other areas in the city obviously um sheer khan as we mentioned curry mile um the evolution of the curry mile wasn't quite like the evolution of ancoats was it ruth no, I don't think it was. I mean, I was I moved to Manchester in 19, oh my God, 1996. So I was here after, after the, and the Curry Mile was one of the only places to go when I got here. There was almost nothing. And I was talking to a friend today and we were just saying it was, I know it sounds awful, but it was a bit of a culinary desert in those days. But the Curry Mile wasn't. And um, I just did a little bit of research into the history of Shere Khan, which was the first licensed curry house on the Curry Mile. I'm not saying it was the first, but it combined a very modern interior with kind of traditional dishes which they kind of gradually modernized and some of the modernizations are bringing in things like lamb nahari which we now consider a really kind of traditional dish but it, it only came in in uh, 2007 and it was regarded as quite exciting at the time but you could see somewhere like Shere Khan as a forerunner to um, the more kind of you know fine dining-y curry houses that we have like Ashes and Dishoom um, and obviously there was Shimla Pinks as well I don't know if anyone yeah, knows Shimla, that Shimla Pinks. which is like much it. missed yeah. <laughs> and Gaylord as well, which I think and was, Gaylord, which yeah. was sort of the business community. I remember being taken to Gaylord by my dad when he worked over in Manchester, and that was like the posh one that the business people went to in the city centre at the time. I think there's a, a, an argument to be made as well for um, slightly off topic, but Russia and Wilmslow Road there arguably being one of the most influential food streets in the city because it's not just a curry mile, it's actually a, a mile of the food of the immigrant communities that have moved to the city. You see the same thing with Brick Lane in, in London. So although it was primarily Pakistani and Bangladeshi back in the day, it went through a wave of kind of North African immigration. And now a lot of the restaurants and cafes down there are becoming Kurdish or Iraqi. It changes and changes as the, the kind of waves of people coming to Manchester change. And I think it's a fascinating social document of that. And the, the fact that it provides a toehold for these cultures and these cuisines in the city that I think then disseminates out as people become exposed to these new dishes or new flavors or new styles is, is fascinating. 
you know, and, and it keeps evolving, it keeps changing. I'm sure it'll be doing it still in 25 years' time. And one of those classic areas, I guess much like the northern quarter with its curry cafes that predate artists, apart from Mike Gary, who's obviously always been there, um, where it's actually a mixed audience. So it is... Uh, those who remember the cuisine it's authentic enough that they can enjoy eating there and there will be sweet shops next door but also the white anglo-saxon students who are come pouring into the city and, and want to experience slightly different cultures or whatever that may be curry mile managed to do that really well chinatown manages to do that really well northern quarter manages to do that quite well i think uh, to mix those things and of course now we have manchester chicken wings is the next culinary establishment of spicy, the asian community spicy chicken, spicy wings. chicken burger <laughs> spicy chicken burger is the is the new thing in town i think miami crispy are the current kings of the hill in that regard though i'm sure it will have changed by the time this podcast comes out but yeah thanks to the mill for uncovering that little jewel and a, a new mancunian contribution to global cuisine which is, which is brilliant. I'm, I'm talking of the Northern Quarter. There are a few different restaurants in the Northern Quarter. Obviously, we think about the curry cafes, this and that, leading that. But I know we had arguments about which is the best curry cafe. Um, but it's emblematic. But it's also, it's had a couple of restaurants, which I guess are pretty important as well, um, in terms of sort of uh, posh cooking. And, and then moving into more the home sweet homes and, and those sort of delis, which um, get an audience from a number of different people, but particularly the residents there. I mean, I think, so I think the Northern Court's quite an interesting one because I do feel it's more more casual dining, but obviously there was the market restaurant was there for yeah. a really long time. Which is what I was referring to. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and, and that's a huge favourite of people. I'm not 100% sure if it's still around because it's not been on my radar for a while. No, no it's 63 now. Yeah, okay. 63 degrees is there now. 63 degrees, yeah, uh, which is amazingly still going, yeah. But it's not an area that's massively well known for fine dining, but it is an area that has given birth to, for example, Almost Famous, which was one of the ones that we've talked about as well. Um, and when Almost Famous came around in the kind of late 2000s, um, I just remember huge queues around the block and we were talking before about the impact, how it was one of the first kind of social media phenomenon restaurants and it, it really did change things up and led to loads of restaurants that have kind of followed on, you know, with a similar formula. And then I think the other thing to talk about that came up a lot was um, that idea of the new city centre, how the city centre was was developing in uh, the early to mid 90s and then then out uh, the first sort of restaurants that were as much about being seen even in the period before insta so restaurant bar and grill grill on the alley to some to some extent um you did mention one dish which i don't remember at all ruth which is duck pizza oh, yeah. <laughs> tell the us duck, about duck pizza the duck pizza at grinch yeah so well i mean i went on some of i went on the first date with my first child's dad at grinch and i remember he was so he thought it was so he's he's from uh remote place in Ireland and he thought it was so fancy that he was sick in a cup with nerves <laughs> while I went to the loo which I just think is just completely outrageous it's too much detail but he thought it was just so glamorous and upmarket. market but it was it was kind of like a really uh this was before the food though it was before the food it, it, was, your, like, it, it was your influence <laughs> for me it felt like the kind of fusion of uh, like a brasserie in a, in a wine bar or a kind of bistro in a wine bar and it just felt so modern so fancy so kind of urban it was just not the kind of place that we had back where I was from in the Midlands. And um, yeah, it really pushed the game forward and became everyone's favorite place. I think so. Yeah. For Grinch a couple was, of years. Yeah, yeah. no, for, for a good number of years, I would say deal. actually. Yeah, it was a huge thing, Grinch. Um, wonderful place. I, I was personally, uh, I like the goat's cheese pizza, which again, for a, a guy from Glossop, 
the idea that you can make cheese from goats this was revelatory um revelatory stuff and it was cool it had slightly risque artwork on the wall it was quite kind of bright and buzzy it was a clattery brassery sort of thing and the music was pumping probably slightly louder than i would like it nowadays but it did it felt like it felt like you were in the middle of a happening city when you when you sat in Grinch. It had a particular feel and a particular vibe, certainly for a certain cohort of people at that time. Like you say, fond memories, I think, from everyone for Grinch. And are there any others from that period, leaving aside the ones that we know are going to get through to the, the, the final nine or ten, um, that, you, that you'd pick out as, as sort of influential? Do you know what? I think there's, I think there's one, and maybe, maybe even we're guilty of, of underplaying this uh, a little bit, but it's simply Heathcote's. Um, which is just around the corner from where we're doing the the podcast now. Um, Paul Heathcote is still around. He's still cooking. He's still involved in all sorts of projects. But back in the day, he had two Michelin stars for his restaurant in Longridge, just up in uh, in Lancashire. Um, and then he came up with a concept, again, very, very current, very ahead of its time in some ways, of creating a, not a stuffy fine dining restaurant, but a restaurant with ambitious food, quite strong interior design, quite kind of stark modern interior design, but just more accessible. And, and more affordable and uh, Simply Heathcote's was, was the flagship and the food was fantastic and it looked cool it had that slight kind of gallery vibe big white walls and high ceilings nice bright pops of colour with the art and the, the plants and it was an amazing place and, and for me it was probably for a good period a good number of years the best place to eat in, in Manchester and, uh, and then it's kind of slipped away from everyone's consciousness but I do think it raised the bar and maybe raised people's expectations within the city and shaped some of what went thereafter I'm completely scarred by Heathcote's. It was for about a year and a half. It was my uh, date venue of choice when you started to get serious and spend some, wanted to spend some money on somebody. And none of those relationships lasted more than about two meals after Heathcote's. And I'm going to blame that on Heathcote's as opposed to my deeply unpleasant personality. <laughs> uh, Ruth from that first generation. See, we're sharing. Now we need Tom to share from that, that period as well. <laughs> date stories. Um, from that sort of period, are there any that you would pick out that, that had more of an effect than just... I think, yeah, I think for me, Grill on the Alley was a really big deal. Um, yeah. And there was, a, there's a, there was another one that was nearby, which is similar, um, living... Uh, anyway, Grill on the Alley, massive for me. You went in, it felt like it was a New York steakhouse. I'd never been to New York or, or a New York or a steakhouse, but I loved, the, I loved the idea that that's what it was. The lighting was really low. There was little booths. You'd look around and there'd be people dressed in really glamorous clothes and high heels, and they all seemed to be having a fantastic time. The food was good enough it was kind of you know really great Caesar salads it was kind of food that I just loved to eat it was really accessible the wines were just fantastic I remember I think it might have been the first place I tried Malbec and I was like this is so good it's not just red it's got names <laughs> and uh yeah it just seemed really exciting and buzzy and the, yeah just everything about it was really fantastic and it was expensive but I discovered that I didn't mind spending a lot of money on food I was like no that's fine it was worth it it was a great night out so yeah I think the interesting thing about there as well, because I, I agree with absolutely everything you said, it was obviously one of uh, Living Ventures' iconic uh, restaurants back in the day, but they really invested in the kind of theatre of it as well. You know, the, like you say, the lighting was bang on, but they, they used to have a lot of kind of live music and people on the piano around the kitchen. They used to have the kind of steak on display and all the lobsters in the tanks and everything. So it did, it felt like a really intense, buzzy kind of multi-stimulatory restaurant experience. You know, it's a pretty mind-blowing thing when you'd been used to just sitting at your little two-top or four-top table and every half hour someone brought you another dish. Suddenly you felt in the middle of something and it was quite intoxicating. 
Yeah, I think maybe those kind of places set the scene for Hawksmoor and places like that to be welcomed with such gusto, um, you know, and they've kind of passed the back. Yeah, they primed primed the pitch really, didn't they? And uh, Grill on the Alley is one of those that our other contributors has mentioned. So uh, we're going to get some other voices in and then come back. We might have mentioned some of our potential finalists along the way, but there are some names that you're probably howling at your radio, iPhone, whatever it is you're listening to this through, um, going, why didn't they mention that? Well, we might mention them when we get through to the finalists in a moment. Stay with us as you listen to some other voices. So, Antonio Lalamont, what's the most influential restaurant in Manchester City Centre, in your opinion. Why um, would you remember well, about it? <laughs> I mean, it's not there anymore, but um, I'm going to have to go with Grill on the Alley. Um, I don't think you can talk about influential restaurants without sort of giving a nod to any of the Live Adventures uh, clans, I suppose. Um, Grill on the Alley sort of stands out for me because it sort of happened in that sort of late noughties era when Instagram was just coming about. Everybody wanted like, a little bit more from their, their food. It was more conceptual dining than just going for a restaurant for a bite to eat. And Grill on the Alley was just this amazing place. I remember the first time that I went, uh, we ordered a garlic bread and it came with like a of garlic in a little uh, net and you got to rub it on your own bread. Like you're making your own food and it was just so fun. And I'd never had anything like that before. Um, and obviously, you know, it had success for many, many years before its slow demise, but... Yeah, I loved it. And I loved all of those sort of conceptual sites. Australasia was another one. An artisan. Yeah, just being 20 years old, it was so much fun. I mean, in a sense, Grill on the Alley, I think, where it was, because it was sort of sort of the old business district. Yeah. Uh, which had changed a bit, but also very close to Spinningfields, the new business district as well. So I think there is a an argument that of those sort of Insta restaurants, it was very much the first uh, in Manchester anyway, obviously. And the first... And, and I guess one of the ones that really kicked off that new city centre uh, and, yeah. that, and that sort of trawl around Deansgate. Yeah, I mean, you had, you know, you had Restaurant Bar and Grill sort of opposite as well. Around that time, they did their new terrace. So, yeah, it was really sort of bringing that little area to life. Um, and the decor was so cool as well. They had like the best neon sign above the stairs. I think I've got a picture of it on my phone still somewhere. <laughs> And there was a period where Tim Bacon, um, Lord love him, I think, was churning out new ideas about four new restaurants and new bars sort of every six months and churning their way along. And there was a feeling, I guess, with Grill on the Alley that they, they, kept, they, they moved on to other concepts really, really quickly, but it actually continued to still be a really good operation long after, whereas sometimes they shut down their older operations, didn't they? Yeah. And, um, you know, they all came in pretty quick succession. So what a treat for all of us sort of growing up and eating, you know, starting to eat out in restaurants at that time. It was amazing. Cool. Thank you very much. We'll see whether it gets into the final top five. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. And for the latest opinion, Kathleen O'Connor, consultant and director of Eat Well Manchester. Tell us your nomination for most influential restaurant, Kathleen. Uh, I'm going to nominate Tampopo. And um, why Tampopo? So Tampopo is um it's been going for twenty five years, which in Manchester with the hospitality landscape constantly changing is a pretty impressive feat in itself. But um I just remember being super excited when it opened twenty five years ago. I think at that time, you know, we'd probably go for a Chinese maybe in Chinatown, which was great, but there wasn't anything that sort of felt a bit more modern. 
Uh, it was like modern, clean, exciting. It was bringing together um, like food from across the whole of the Far East region as well, rather than just special. So like, obviously, you might have a Japanese restaurant. I don't know if you even did have Japanese restaurants in Manchester 25 years ago, to be honest. You, you might go for like a curry on Curry Mile, or you might go for a Chinese in Chinatown. But to have something that was bringing all these different cuisines together um, just felt very fresh and exciting. And first time you ate there, um, do you remember the experience? I remember being like, ooh, we're all sitting on communal benches. <laughs> this is very exciting. Which was a bit of a shock when the first time you, if you, if you weren't used to that sort of thing and you were just used yeah. to tables on your own sort of thing. Yeah, how modern. <laughs> so now there's so many things. That's as well why, you know, when you asked about influential restaurants, um, it, it did do a lot of the things before they became as commonplace as they are now. And I, I have to mention a conflict. I do work with Tampopo, but <laughs> that isn't why I nominated them. Um, it just means that I've actually got a really good understanding of sort of where it sits in the fabric of the Manchester restaurant scene as well. Because we just get Very so nervous. many. We had an email um, recently from, uh, so they said we could talk about it, but from someone who, after they'd um, had their baby, uh, I think it was their baby or their child was really sick in hospital and they used to have to go for all these awful appointments and then go to Tampopo to eat afterwards. And they just sent this gorgeous email about it being almost like a lifeline to them during that time of stress. Um, and we get loads of stuff like that. You know, I think uh, Clint Boone from the Inspiral Carpets, did he have his like wedding party there, I think? You know, loads, loads of different stories from people come through all the time. So. I think, you know, I think whilst we've got all these fabulous new openings all the time, it's really nice when you see that sort of consistency as well. It's one of the things that we came up in the, the history section that we did, the importance of restaurants, obviously, for those those big moments, the birthdays and the anniversaries and the proposals and so on. And Tampo's has been around long enough, but also such a part of the architecture and fabric of Manchester um, that it has that nostalgic feel to some extent even though it's still very modern because you actually do remember going there 15 years ago 20 years ago whatever it is or you've got people who, who celebrated very important occasions there which is which is always a really nice thing as opposed to restaurants that might be here for three or four days for three or four years doing yeah. the latest thing and then disappearing again yeah exactly i mean i know my little girl who is eight now she had her first sort of taste of noodles um, at Tampopo long before I was working with them. Um, they've got the little kiddie chopstick and stuff. So, yeah. It's hard It's hard to think that actually youngsters eating with chopsticks, which for most, I mean, certainly for my girls, they're as good with chopsticks as they are with, well, probably better than they are with knife and fork most of the time. That wasn't a thing 25 years ago, was it? If you were if you were an yeah. English child with chopsticks, yeah. you, probably, you know, you play with them or try and light a fire with them. You wouldn't actually yeah. be eating with them. And yeah. Tampopo has been semi-responsible for some of that. <laughs> yeah exactly thank you for that that's been great no problem so we're joined by lucy noon uh, to continue this exploration of which what was the most influential manchester restaurant um lucy what restaurant are you gonna nominate and why um i <laughs> Slightly political um, for me, given my job, um, to ever have to pick 
any kind of restaurant above another, but I think I'd be forgiven by most people for this one. I'm going to go with Hawksmoor um, because although by no means the first kind of big famous brand to come to the city, um, I think from where I sit and where I sat, it was the one that kind of changed the game. It was a bit of a turning point, I think, where the city said, oh, right, okay, this is something we can do now. This is the kind of restaurant we can support actively, not even just support, we can revel in having here. Um, I was on the opening team, handheld, <laughs> um, but you know I've not I've not worked there for a long time now, and but stayed really good friends and close to the business. Um, and I just think they I can't say change the game, can you? Because everyone says change the game. The game's been changed that many times, but I think they brought something new to the city that no one else had quite done before. In a way that no one else had quite done it before. It was, and it, they just stood firm. They stood firm through their all their principles. They brought you know staff wearing trainers and much to people's utter horror that the staff were wearing trainers but that was okay or yeah yeah I think they, they, it, it was a in my span of my career that was the game changer that the first big game changer that I saw um I joined Living Ventures just after they opened Australasia and the Alchemist so I missed that kind of that big um shift and then the next one I think was when Hawksmoor came along and just raised the game and I still do the stuff. I'm still. It's one of my regular, along with Carla, I think one of my regular lunch haunts. Um, yeah. It's because the service has always been good. They've managed to, even at the depths of not being able to recruit staff uh, last year and the end of the year before, they've always managed to keep the service good. And they also they also keep serving on different. They had they never went down the we're going to close Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday type thing, which a lot of other restaurants did as well. They just kept open. No, and it, it almost becomes like a resource, doesn't it? That to the city, it was a bit of a port in a storm. I think I certainly, I certainly took refuge in that bar and have taken refuge in that bar from anything from a horrible rainstorm to you know the miseries of kind of coming back from COVID. And they were open and they were their arms were open from the day you know the day the doors were allowed to open. They were back and the staff were wonderful and. They were just genuinely delighted to have people there. I think, I think, do you know what? Come rain or shine, they're delighted to have people in there, which, which is a nice thing, isn't it? It's uh, That's all you can really want. That classic thing, as you say, because of the building, it does that classic thing of feeling like you are slightly stepping into a different world. Yeah, so you do. You it's happening outside. Thing. Yeah, and it's just that little bit of detachment. You can just kind of sit and, if you want to drink a martini at quarter midday, no you judgment. pretend that it's actually nine at night. Yeah, dark. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I've I've kind of I've made a bit of a habit of sitting at the bar with a glass of white wine, a bowl of chips and some anchovy hollandaise and sort of <laughs> telling myself that's a meal. Um finishing the day, catching up on a few emails. It's got all the essential all. nutrients. I can't see why that wouldn't be a meal. Especially if yeah, you have an olive in a martini. That's that's all yeah. the nutrient you need, isn't it? Or two. Yeah. Thank yeah. you very um, much, Lucy. Thank but that's you. that's probably my uh I'd say that's my most influential restaurant. I remember when they opened it, we'll say, you know, let's just open a restaurant that's for Manchester and make a really good restaurant because that's what Manchester deserves, not because you know, we don't need to change anything about this business. It's a, it's a wonderful restaurant. Kind of, you know, what they do is wonderful. We don't need to do anything different here. Um, it, will, it will do its thing because it's great. Thank you very much indeed. So you've heard a lot about a lot of different restaurants um, and a lot of different areas of the city. So we're not going to get to a final winner here, but we are going to get to a short list of a short list. Let's start with the long list of the short list. Um, and I've asked the others to come up with three nominations. I've got three nominations, a couple of which have been mentioned already, um, but to go through the ones that they think were most influential. So Tom, give us your top three. Okay. So 
I think the first one was the was the easiest one, um, and I think everyone of a certain age will will remember the name and possibly will have stolen an ashtray, which dates it immediately from this venue. It was Machinaire. Or still have their membership card. Or still have their membership card, which I do. Um, I know. I saw that on the exchange on Twitter. It was I, like I am still like the Hacienda man membership card. So yeah, they they even spelt my name wrong, which is tradition. Uh, everyone has to spell either my surname or my forename wrong, which they did. So good for them. So it was Machinaire, and it was Oliver Payton restaurant it was a multi-story affair in uh, on Canal Street uh, just on the corner of Canal Street near the the bus station and it was gobsmacking really it was an incredibly kind of modernist design it was like going inside a inside a spaceship it was over a couple of stories and it was it was painted these really striking kind of tangerine orange and powder blue and lime green kind of uh, uniform uniform colorways but what really blew blew me away was in the middle of it, they had a microbrewery. They had a craft microbrewery on site down the middle of the, the entire venue and you could see it through portholes behind the bar. And bearing in mind, this was over 20 years ago. And then on the middle floor, they had a place doing sourdough pizza in wood-fired ovens, okay? And then on the top floor, they had fine dining, but it was kind of fine dining in trainers. It was kind of laid back fine dining. The chef there was actually a guy, a northerner called Jason Atherton, who went on to work with Gordon Ramsay and has since become one of the world's great chefs. I think he has seven, eight, nine Michelin stars all, the, all across Europe, London and, uh, and the Far East as well. But if you write those things down, if you go, okay, craft brewery, fine. Sourdough pizzeria, fine. Relaxed fine dining, fine. It predated pretty much all of the Northern Quarter, Ancoats, and most of all the major cities across the UK by about 20 years. Um, it maybe picked the wrong site. Maybe it just picked the wrong time because it clearly didn't work in, in the long term. But I think it was I think it was iconic. And I think it was influential as well because I think it opened a lot of eyes around the city to all of those styles of cooking, all of those styles of eating and drinking, the idea of these kind of bolting all these different facets together, which is becoming increasingly uh, trendy now, particularly in kind of hotels and stuff. It just it just felt like a window to the future. And when I look back at it now, it still feels ahead of its time. And one interesting thing we did at NRB, the, the hospitality trade show I used to run, I interviewed Jason Atherton and we had a little game at the end for charity where I picked 10 dishes, five of them, the menu description was his, from his menu at Machinaire 20 years ago. And five were from contemporary chefs, including a dish from Mary Ellen. And he had to try and work out, is this a dish that's over 20 years old? Or is this a dish that's being served now? And he couldn't get them all right because the menu was so current, it still stood up today. Incredible. So for me, that that would be number one. And then the, the second two, to me... Are, Sorry, before you start, any memories of Machinaire? No, I never went to Machinaire. You did? never went no, to Machinaire? No, but I, I might, I might um, butt into Tom's flag <laughs> with that. Like, can I go with, can I go with Aubrey now? Absolutely. Go with it, go on. Go, yeah. Let's, Let's mix it up. Yes. See, is that all right? See, yeah, yeah. we've uh, we've um, yeah we've kind of moved through through that one, and there's a natural link to Mary Ellen. But yeah, so my, one of mine is Ombre, which um, so it was set up by Mary Ellen. I'm not 100 percent sure which year, um, and it it lasted for about five years. And at the time, it was one of the only kind of fine dining tasting menu restaurants in in the area. I think it came after Juniper. Um, and Mary Ellen had come from uh, the Fat Duck, where she was second in command to Heston Blumenthal. And she'd then gone to um, Ramsons in Ramsbottom, where she'd learned all about kind of locally sourced ingredients and the amazing produce across the whole region. Um, and she was just completely inspired by, so her background at the Fat Duck, the local produce. 
And then she came up with this incredible menu of her own. Um, and I was talking to her about it today and she was just explaining how it's kind of like white tablecloths, a tasting menu. But for me, it was like, it, it came at a time when there just wasn't anything else. And I think it opened the door to the kind of neighborhood restaurants, but also this kind of hyper-local ingredients um, but very kind of uh, just really high-end cooking that you see. I mean, I think it, it has inspired the kind of more small plates revolution that we've seen at places like Erst and Tented Lane and so on and so forth. But for me, I just feel like she, she just kind of kicked off a movement um, of embracing seasonal produce, embracing fine wine and doing it really, really well and really uniquely in this area. I think for me, the other thing I, I remember about um, Ombre is it was very much of the vanguard as kitchen of kitchens and brigades as much more thoughtful cerebral quieter places we were we were still in the kind of heyday of ramsey uh, there was a lot of machismo around chefs and being in kitchens and a lot of them were still seen as like being in the boiler room of a, a ship and everyone shouting at each other and you know clattering and all the rest of it there was just a thoughtfulness about Ombre, which really resonated in a calmness and probably a kindness about the whole experience that really struck me as different. And I think if you look at a lot of restaurants now, including places like Erst or the Packhorse out near me in Derbyshire, the, the way those kitchens are run now and the way the front house teams and the kitchen teams work together, I feel like I can trace that back to places like Ombre. Yeah, and she's also been influential in terms of the people that she worked with. So her second in command at Ombre was Richard Sharples, who's gone on to become the kind of chief chef for the elite bistros group um, and ev apparently she's one of the chefs that um, people like to kind of tick off to say that they've worked with in terms of their skill set so it's like well I did a stage at Manor or whatever but you know doing something with Mary Ellen is uh, one of the uh, yeah one of the kind of things that you need to tick off if you want to be a great chef. Well as you mentioned it um, as it came before one of my list is Juniper uh, obviously, um, Paul Kitchen, who set up Juniper, died late last year, um, which was really sad. He was very young. Um, I think it was one of my first experiences of fine dining, and it was very much one of those experiences that... Uh being a complete Philistine now, I won't go out with Tom when he takes me to small plate restaurants and he wants to go on about food. I'd rather have fish and chips or a dirty burger, which I'll come back to in a minute. But in those days, it was a totally new experience. And I think it sat with Long Clume for me as somewhere where the chef would talk to you. And certainly uh, Paul's wife would, would come out and talk to, talk to the clients. It was felt like a small front room. So it was a little bit like Champagnon Sauvage in Cheltenham, which is one of my favorite restaurants. Um, I never knew whether it was true, but it was always claimed that Paul was effectively making up the menu on the spot every single evening and just deciding we're going to do this and we're going to do that for 20 courses or we're going to do this for 25 courses oh and you've, you've lost count how many courses you've got in your eight course tasting menu because i've decided to send out another 45 plates at various times they didn't all work and a lot of them were absolutely dreadful a lot of them were absolutely inspiring and mind-blowing but it felt like somewhere and i think much like rogan also had a sense of humor about it which more possibly the fat duck i've never felt the few times I've eaten at the Fat Duck, it has a sense of humour. You would get at Juniper some comment on childhood food. You would do the classic one that gets mentioned a lot is the spaghetti that he'd do, and you know, which was almost done out to be like baby spaghetti type thing. Um, he would play a lot of games. He was very, very funny. Um, and I think without that, there wouldn't have been a lot of the restaurants that, that came after. Not least the sort of suburban restaurants that Greater Manchester does, almost front rooms that have been set up. Um, Paul, uh, 
when they were looking to move out from Juniper and into the city centre, actually came to look at uh, what had been Lamont at the top of the Urbis building that I was uh, running at the time. Um, and we did have a number of conversations because he was looking to take it over and I was looking to take it over. Uh, for once, I won that one and um, turned it into the modern, uh, which was extremely successful. But Paul did come in about six months later to have a fish finger sandwich, which if Tom remembers, our fish finger sandwiches were absolutely legendary. Um, and uh, we had a beer together and it was it was really nice. And he went, I don't actually think we'd have worked here, to be honest. And I don't think they would have worked there. So he went off to Edinburgh to do 21 21 uh, which again, got a Michelin star, was amazing. I think that's the other thing about Juniper in, in Alty. He was the only restaurant in Greater Manchester to have a star for 10 years or so. Yeah, he was absolutely. GFG Restaurant of the Year. He was definitely on that level with Rogan at that time. Uh, it's, you know, maybe slight, slightly a tragedy that he ended up leaving because who knows where he could have been if he'd stayed and continued to cook. But I think that changed a lot of people's perceptions about Manchester. Yeah, I think, you know, people have very conflicting and, and quite emotional responses to the whole idea of Michelin star restaurants and fine dining. But it, it is it is an important part of the, you know, the, the kind of spectrum of, of going and eating out. And I think for a lot of Mancunians, that was their introduction. Um, and like you, it was one of the earliest places that I experienced in inverted commas, fine dining. It's part of what kind of fed my my burgeoning food geekery. And I could only do that because it was here in the city, you know, because you because I could get to it. Um, I couldn't go down to London as easily or up to the Lake District or wherever it might be, but I could eat food of that ambition, of that brilliance, of that risk-taking here in my own city. So I, I think that's one of those places that's shifted the market. It's fed the market and developed the market, created a kind of curiosity and a, an appetite, for want of a, a better word, that kind of sustained a lot of the places that came after them. I, I mean, I think it also made us believe that it was possible for a restaurant Absolutely. in Manchester to have a Michelin star. Because I certainly remember I was here during the fallow years when there was no Michelin stars. And, you know, during the restaurant wars when um, Rogan was trying to get a Michelin star at the French. Um, and it just seemed like perhaps Manchester is incapable. Perhaps we're just, we don't deserve one. You know, there was this kind of feeling that we just weren't kind of good enough. But it had been done before and it has been done since. So I think it was incredibly important just to make us know as a city that we are good enough Worthy. to get one. Not, not, that we yeah. need, not that we need that aff affirmation, but it's just to know that we're not on the outside of and, the food And scene. done with actually quite interesting cooking as well. It wasn't done in the way... You know, obviously I get to tease Birmingham a little bit, but, you know, when they developed three or four starred restaurants within a couple of years, they were all basically the same restaurant. And it was all done to a particular program of this is how you get your star. And Juniper wasn't like that. Um, and Mana certainly isn't like that for all, for all the issues around Mana. Um, second one. So my second one, yeah. So for me, I think Hawksmoor also fits into this kind of box of it is possible to do it here. So when Hawksmoor came here, there was a kind of debate, I remember, amongst the kind of foodies of the city. You know, Hawksmoor had been very successful in London. I'm not, I think it might have been the first one, Tommy, you'll be able to confirm this, outside of London. And there was a question, will it succeed? Can anyone out of the capital appreciate steak and wine and pay enough money for it to make a Hawksmoor work? Um, will, it, will it have the same atmosphere? Will it be as exciting and fun as all the ones that I'd been going down to in London to experience and really like. And I felt this kind of uh, like a nervousness when they were launching, going, perhaps it'll crash and burn here. You know, perhaps we aren't like able to sustain that. Perhaps we don't have the right money or perhaps we've got different tastes or whatever. But it, it was successful. And I think that it opened the doors well, to a fantastic restaurant and to their kind of like launching across the city and also launching in New York. But it also opened the doors to other restaurants taking a, you know, a step here, like Deschamps and stuff like that. So really good quality restaurants that thought, yeah, actually, well, if Hawksmoor worked there, 
we can have a go as well. So it was kind of, for me, Hawksmoor, it's a great steak restaurant. It's moved the model along. I don't think it's innovative in itself in the sense that, you know, they have them in London and it is part of a wider group. But what it did do was give us the kind of courage to know that we can do, well, if we can do Hawksmoor here, we can probably do anything here. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. There's there's two um, two other angles that I'd, I'd add to that. Just firstly, expanding on the, the point you just made, I think you're absolutely right that there'd been a couple of waves of London chains and groups opening in Manchester and the vast majority of them, for a variety of reasons, had gone back with their tail between the legs, whether it's Byron, whether it's Bossabari Thai, whether it's uh, Relais de Venise Entrecarte, whether it was the, the kind of wave of celebrity chefs with their name over the door, they, they all crashed and burned. And I think London was nervous of Manchester. It felt maybe Manchester didn't get London or London didn't get Manchester. But I think Hawksmoor, when they came up here, and just like you said, everyone said, dumb down, drop the prices change the menu and I remember saying to them don't you know don't do that you will find your audience and you know to be fair to to Will and Hugh and the team they absolutely stuck to their guns and you're you're right once the big guys and and the kind of really aspiring ambitious operators saw Hawksmoor succeed here it did bring in the Deschumes and now people like uh, Flatiron are coming in and so on and so on there's all these quality guys following on I know operators like JKS are looking at the city and I think they did prove that the other thing that Hawksmoor changed to me in the city that sometimes doesn't get mentioned is service. And I think that's something that with the best will in the world, Manchester and a lot of places outside of London, almost everywhere outside of London, wasn't good at service. And the first thing that changed it was Tim Bacon and Jeremy and the guys at Living Ventures. And they drilled their staff to, to be able to be professional front of house servers. Apparently they had this legendary book about two inches thick that prescribed how many table touches you have during the evening and all that sort of thing. And that was incredibly important because it gave people a structure and a, and a kind of base understanding of how service could work and should work. And it created a, a continuity and a consistency and a kind of minimum standard, which was brilliant. But there was a period where I used to go down to London and there was a, there was, it was different in London. There was a more kind of affable relaxed there was more variety in the service in terms of the way people were with you but it was always underpinned by this really smart professionalism it felt like the living ventures model of the late 90s early noughties but just i don't know a little softer and a, a little more human and i think Hawksmoor were in the vanguard of that they were pioneers of that they they used to work with um you know some amazing people on all the training and the staff development and when they came up to to manchester a lot of the local operators had to learn from them and respond to them. And now when I go to places like Erst or Tentib Lane or Klimat or still to Hawksmoor, who, you know, almost never drop the ball, I get that really relaxed, very human, very personable and warm, but very professional service. And I, I think they moved the dial for Manchester and have, have really shaped things. And I think there's an argument that they reintroduced the business lunch as well. In a particular area of town, it became that place where you would see business people. And that wasn't something that actually happened for quite a while no they, they, did, they did lunch seven days a week seven days and, a week which is really I, important finding somewhere to eat on a monday for lunch i, I is, for is really, one really applaud hard. that and make full use of it yeah um tom is taking a drink of water so i shall now ask him his second as he's still swallowing um <laughs> as he takes a breath of air go on your second tom so <laughs> i'm going to link my second and third together excellent because, time because, saving device as we go into our third hour of broadcast. yeah because i i think i think they they relate they they feed off each other and the only thing that i realized as I was coming in today to, to do this podcast, as a proud, proud Mancunian, is that actually there's a big London aspect to this. And it slightly, slightly frustrates me because London is arguably the world's preeminent restaurant city, or certainly has been for the last 20 years or so. 
restaurateurs would come from all over the world to go to London for ideas, for inspiration, kind of on safari tours and all the rest of it, just seeing what was happening and what they could take back to their own countries, their own cities, their own restaurants. So it's not surprising that we do it too. It just frustrates me in terms of North-South bias and regional pride that I have to accept that there is a London influence to my two choices. So the first one is the Mark Addy, which was the, the kind of career zenith, I think, of, of Robert Owen Brown, who's a fabulous person and a, and a fabulous chef. And what he brought to Manchester was this kind of very, very gutsy nose-to-tail style of, of cooking and eating. And it was really a reinvention or, a, or an invention of modern British cuisine. It was ingredient-led, wasn't overly technical. The plates of food were simple. It was the, the ingredients, the main products that did the, did the talking. And there was a fanatical interest in local, in seasonal, in historical. Being honest, he was inspired by St. John in London. Uh, which was arguably the most influential British restaurant, possibly along with the Eagle Gastropub, of the last 25 years. And some of the dishes that he used to do, like the bone marrow, the roast bone marrow with parsley salad, were, were basically dishes from St. John from Fergus Henderson. But absolutely no shame in that, because Robert brought that style of cooking to Manchester. And it was the first time I ever felt when people came to my city, particularly from abroad, I could take them somewhere and go, this is our food, this is our cuisine. These are our products. This is our style of cooking. This is th these are the things that we enjoy. Uh, whether it's lamb in spring or game in autumn, or you know all the various kind of um, fruit and veg coming in through the seasons, and that was quite revelatory for me. And then I think secondary to that, my next pick or my final pick would be Erst up in Ancos. I was there only yesterday for the first time, unforgivably, in a couple of months, and it reminded me just how good it was but there's there's been a new a new genre or a new template of restaurant which is small plates natural wines and again it kind of grew out of hackney east london from a generation of chefs who were influenced by what was going on at, at saint john down in london in fact fergus henderson's wife margot henderson um was one of these restaurants at rochelle canteen but also places like uh like lyle's Latterly, places like Brat as well, places like Braun. Um, they were all doing these small plates, lots of natural wines and small producers and low intervention wines and absolutely produce led, absolutely British produce led and absolutely driven by seasonality. And Erst were the, f the first guys to do it up here. And at the time, I used to go down to London a lot and I'd, I would always seek out that sort of food. That was the food that excited me. And I would trek out to the East End and eat in these places. And I remember when Erst opened in the city centre and I was like, oh my God, this is the food that I put up with the West Coast mainline for, and suddenly I can eat it, you know, just by wandering up to Ancos. Unbelievable, gobsmacking. And they proved that it could work. Again, they proved that it could work even out in far-flung Ancos, but they, they proved that people would eat and enjoy that style of food. And, and they've really gone stellar since then. They get listed in the National Restaurant Awards. I think they're around about the top 30 in the entirety of the UK. They've got glowing reviews from Marina O'Loughlin, from Jay Rayner. Um, they've earned all sorts of plaudits. But I think there's now a whole raft of restaurants that they're not looking to ape it, but they're certainly influenced by it. I look at places like Tentib Lane, or Another Hand, or the Allen at the, the Allen Hotel. Um, even Klimat, though the wine list is different, the food certainly has echoes of Erst. And it seems to be proliferating right across the city. And I think that's a good thing because it's great food. It's a lovely kind of relaxed but professional feel. I know it's a trend and I know it's a hipster thing. It's probably my favorite place to eat at the minute. And that style of dining, small plates, informal, nice glasses of wine. I'm happy there. I'd be there day and night.
In fact, I often you, you are. I am. Yeah. It's, it's, it's his dream come true. I was well. I was just wondering though: is it? Are we going to swing back soon to the more kind of formal three-course meal? I don't know. That's that's my prediction. But I, I, I would mean, like I that too. <laughs> we can have both. It's fine. What's your final one? I'll so, do my final yeah, couple. My final one is uh, it's Tampopo. Um, oh, that's a good call. Which, pioneered um, the kind of South Asian flavours. So, you know, kind of Singapore, um, Vietnam, Thailand, those kind of classic dishes from that area, often quite small plates that you might share. And it was set up in 1997 by David Fox. He was an accountant. Um, he's a kind of face around Manchester that everyone will know. Um, and he just, he'd been traveling loads and he came back and he wanted to sap his own restaurant and he got the space and launched it. And it was, um, the reason he went for this kind of regional cuisine is that at the time, Wagamama was you know, a really big trend. I remember going to Wagamama in the year 2000 and it was like the coolest place you could go. You know, you sat on a bench, oh my goodness, and you were near other people and you didn't know them and it was just so kind of communal. You wrote your choices on the menu. On the yeah, yeah. Menu. <laughs> it was just great. You had to tick a box. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. And uh, Tampopo did this, but with, uh, you know, kind of pad thai and small dumplings <laughs> and stuff like that. Um, and yeah, I just thought it was really exciting. I, I love the fact that it was a Manchester brand and he's now got several in Manchester and a couple in London um, and more in the pipeline. But yeah, I think David's done an amazing job of kind of opening the door to that kind of food. And now we see it much more frequently across the city. But at the time he said, you know, th there was nothing like it. And I think it, for me anyway, it was very exciting to find that in a nice restaurant that felt fashionable and you wanted to eat in. It's very interesting, the Manchester patriotism of when Wagamama started to spread across the city. It's like Drew Manx would go, no, 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 we're going to Tampopo. I always like, do. Even I if you go to Wagamama, well. <laughs> Wagamama in London, it's like, no, 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 I know Wagamama's here, but we'll go to Tampopo. Thank you very much. It was like, it was like so drinking, drinking Vimto, not Ribena. Yeah, exactly. You had to, yeah, you had to you stick have to, with your You local. know which one you go with. Right, my final two, and the second one uh, Ruth has already talked about. So while I'm talking about these, um, think about your one out of those three that you would like to to put through for that final list and I'm going to watch Tom's head explode as I talk about that as he tries to decide and probably changes his top three even as we're doing it so my final two um the first one is Yangtzeing and I don't think you can avoid Yangtzeing it's the cornerstone of Chinatown founded in the mid-70s in 1977 so been going what's that nearly 50 years now first at the site of what is now little Yangtzeing and then moving around the corner to the the big place that it currently has Chinatown did exist there were restaurants in Chinatown. Um, Chinese community, Cantonese community started coming over in the 50s. Obviously, the Wing Yip started in the late 50s. Bank of China came in the late 50s, early 60s. So there was a Chinese community. But I think Yang Sing's founding by the Jung brothers and their dad it represented a massive step up in terms of what was being done. It wasn't about a Chinese for the Chinese community that happened to have a few Mancunians going in. It was designed to be that fairly showy restaurant that we're going to do at a particular level. And I think it led to Pacific and it led to a whole bundle of other restaurants around Chinatown that were going, no, actually, this isn't just about having a bit of pig hanging in the window. And then, yes, it's great that, that we'll do an English menu as well as the much bigger Chinese menu. It was actually saying we can do something really, really exciting with Chinese food that is going to appeal to everybody and is going to be, I'd argue, probably borderline Michelin star and it probably should have got a Michelin star during the 90s. Um, but it's been such a part of the fabric of the city. It changed what Chinatown was. Um, I think Jerry then became High Sheriff of Manchester. So in terms of what that family meant to the city, it's absolutely crucial. Now Bonnie is the, the sort of the inheritor of the family, um, though the guys are still around, uh, is one of those leading lights in Chinatown. So I think symbolically in terms of what that is to the city. It can't be denied as one of the most influential. 
Um, my final one that Ruth's already talked about is Almost Famous because Living Opposite, Almost Famous, when that opened in 2012, uh, the queues around the corner was so irritating. Um, it was sort of the first stopping place for students coming in. It was the best place that you could get a dirty burger in this country for about two or three years. No reservations. So they built up that sense of anticipation, which I know it's a thing that a lot of restaurants do now. Uh, but at the time, certainly in Manchester, it wasn't a thing that restaurants were doing unless they were at the very top end for the showy set who were coming to show off their jewels this was a very different thing quite provocative in terms of their social media they knew exactly what they were doing rolled it out relatively quickly kept going through covid Um, i think they're about to open a fifth or sixth one down in withington they've just taken over a big venue in withington so they're continuing to expand um yes ruth i was just gonna say I, i thought as well their interior was just completely radical it was like plywood really rubbish garden furniture, not rubbish, but you know, it, like, <laughs> no, it, was it, was. Just, it was just like thrown in. You had a drink in a jam jar. It was just like thrown together and it made you believe that it was possible to do incredible food in any setting. I thought that was exciting. I, I mean, to be honest, as, as somebody who ate there quite a lot, I actually preferred love, lust, luck, luck and liquor and whatever, because I love Mexican food when it, when it came around. Um, but I think there's no denying how influential almost famous was and continues to be um and though it was part of a zeitgeist that dirty burger thing where you can't go into any pub in the country without having some sort of stack burger which is going to stain all your clothes um it was still stood on its own and i think it still stands on its own i think it was fundamentally very good uh, yeah you know, it, it was fantastic <laughs> the quality of the meat remains amazing yeah it was, it was delicious i think they used to get the burgers from frost they, they used to have the, the bone marrow kind of mixed in with the chuck and everything they were they were really really good um and there, there was a, a kind of i suppose they were part of that that wave of people doing similar things at the time there were people like meat liquor down in down in london um you know it's very much of its time but i think for me the thing that stood out there it felt like almost famous and i'm sure Bo will recoil in horror at the idea of this of me listing it like this but it was the first time that someone that i'd seen in manchester had established a brand purely through social media voice there was no pr there was no advertising there was no nothing it was just the social media channel and as you say sometimes quite provocative but there was a singularity of the voice that he put out and it was compelling and it was exciting and it cut through like nothing else and it got shared and it became viral and they built him and Marie, his partner, they built the entire business really off the beginning of just having that voice on, on Twitter. It was at the time, it was just on Twitter. Um, and that's a, a pretty seismic thing. You look at where restaurant marketing has gone thereafter. It feels to me like Almost Famous was a tipping point and showed what could be done with no budget but just a whole load of attitude and wit on social media. And, and, and one really great dish. Yeah, yeah. do yeah. one thing well. That's a very Which good is, point. Yeah, yeah. Which, and they did do it very well. Right, uh, seven and a half hours in. We'll come down to the final list, I think. Who wants to go first? Ruth, go on. <laughs> so, yeah, I've just been thinking about it. Um, so I'm just going to go, okay, I am, full disclaimer, I am really good friends with Mary Ellen McTague, the chef from Albury. However... <laughs> At the time that Ombre opened, this is my number one. So uh, at the time it opened, I was writing loads of restaurant reviews. And I think I actually wrote about Ombre for the FT. They had a tiny little column that I used to do that I loved doing and it was really fun. Um, and it just uh, it just blew my mind, you know. And I still, I, I, I was reminiscing with a friend who I took on this particular review. And we were just saying how much it kind of changed our perception of the city's food. Um, the key things that it brought were fine dining, hyper-local ingredients, as Tom mentioned before, wonderful, friendly, growth-centered kitchen culture that was inspiring to other younger people. Um, the service was really fantastic, really relaxed, interesting, 
mainly female-led. All of them had their own personalities, but were just so attentive and fabulous. And it was a neighborhood restaurant, so it felt like you were in someone's front room, but it was elevated. So, yeah. And for all those reasons, uh, that's my number one. Brilliant. Tom? Um, for me, if I picked from my three, I think Machinaire would be the one for me. It just, as I say, it drops into Manchester like a spaceship and it really blew everyone away. I think it changed everyone's opinions on what dining, what going out, what hospitality could be and, and should be. And at the time it was, it was, you know, pretty gobsmacking. But I think there were some strong choices around the table. I think Ombre is a really good choice. I think almost famous, you know, really, again, to use the phrase, move the dial in what Manchester could be and should be. There are strong choices right across the board, but Machinaire would be mine from my three. So Ormery, Machinaire, and I'm going to go for Almost Famous. And it has to be really. It was certainly on Twitter, which isn't really a surprise because as Tom said, it did use Twitter as its main social um, form of marketing. Um, I'm not sure, it, even on Insta, it's got that many followers now. So it's, it still does. Uh, and there weren't many others doing it at the time. Um, and I think personally, it opened at the sort of the first wave height of paleo. And so actually getting really good meat at that time and being able to discuss what the butcher was and whether that was grass-fed and all of that sort of stuff, which was really pretentious and boring. But then you could have ketchup and sauce running down your arms as you ate this stuff. It converted me from posh dining to going, actually, I'm a complete Philistine and I like eating burgers with a pint of beer and that's all I want to do. Um, but business-wise, a couple of people coming along did they get funding from outside, Tom? You'll know that more than uh, I did. I don't think so. No. I think it was just themselves. And I remember that they pretty much built everything themselves, yeah. as they did with Socio Rehab, the bar that they, they had with Ian Morgan before. Yeah, and then sort of developing across Manchester. Obviously, there are places, they've got places in uh, Leeds and Liverpool as well. But down to the Great Northern, uh, developing as a brand within Manchester, not trying to expand too massively, uh, but keeping to those brand, brand values is something that an awful lot of other brands are doing all the time. And I think in terms terms of those uh, bridging that gap with something like the Dutch Pancake House, which people had a lot of memories of, but was not massively influential. I think Almost Famous was both. A lot of people remember standing in the queue in Almost Famous as much as they do having the food. And I think that's really important in a place like Manchester. Standing in a friendly queue is a very important thing. So our top three, potentially, Tom will now shake his head at me quite violently, are Machinaire, Bournebury and Almost Famous. We're going to make so many people so angry with this. You know, this is good. It's a good thing you don't, neither of you have anything to do with restaurants. Thank you both very much. If you want to argue, argue with me. Thank you for listening. And if you have any comments or disagreements, please tweet me, not Tom or Ruth, at CottonmouthMCR. Thanks to Tom and Ruth for being part of this process and to Hayley, Kathleen, Lucy and Antonia for their additions. We'll be back in a few weeks with another listicle.